Our text is March is Mark 15 verses 33 through 39. The focus is on the centurion at the cross. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was God's son. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, send your spirit that we may experience through this sermon and this service the embedding of the events of salvation in our contemporary daily lives, that we may respond to your gift with gratitude, wisdom, and service. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. As part of this year's summer sermon series on ordinary but obscure people in the Bible, I am preaching today on another first, the first character we have in the series from the New Testament. He is the centurion in Mark's gospel, the Roman soldier who is in charge of the crucifixion of Christ, who stands near the cross facing Jesus, and who upon Jesus' death exclaims, Truly this man is the Son of God. The centurion is probably one of the two or three better-known characters among the eight that we are covering this summer. Ever since I scheduled myself to preach on the centurion, I've been thinking about a short story I read in college by Ernest Hemingway called Today is Friday. The story is set in a drinking establishment at 11 p.m. Three men enter and immediately their discussion focuses on liquor. You tried the red, the first man asks, No, I ain't tried it, the second man says. Soon their conversation turns to the day's events. He was pretty good in there today, the first man comments. Now the man could be describing a bullfighter or boxer in the ring, two of Hemingway's favorite characters, but it turns out he is describing neither. As we read further in this very short story, we realize that the three men are Roman soldiers who have finished their day's work overseeing the crucifixion of Christ 
and have retired to their favorite bar on the way home. Why didn't he come down off the cross, the second soldier asks, with a hint of irritation toward the now deceased victim. That's not his play, the first one says. Show me a guy who doesn't want to come down off the cross, the second one responds, holding his ground. The third soldier is quiet throughout this conversation. He leans on a barrel. He only speaks to turn down an offer of liquor, saying that he has a gut ache. But then he speaks quietly. And he says that he doesn't like nailing them on and lifting them up. How the whole thing of crucifixion must take some of the men pretty bad. I couldn't feel any worse, he says. I couldn't feel any worse. Meanwhile, the bartender, who is Jewish, keeps his head down, proclaims disinterest, does his job, pours the drinks, tries to get the men to pay something on their tab, and just lays low in a town where Jews are subject to Roman domination. I'll tell you, gentlemen, I wasn't out there. It's a thing I haven't taken any interest in. Joshua Wren is an English professor who has written on this story. And he thinks that as readers, we may be initially inclined to identify with the first soldier who keeps saying, in fact, six times in the story, he says he was pretty good in there today. This soldier seems to admire the way that the condemned Jesus faced his fate with courage and dignity and calm, the grace under pressure for which Hemingway was noted for extolling in many of his characters. But Wren thinks that on the contrary, the soldier Hemingway is holding up for us to ponder is not the first soldier who views Christ as the suffering hero, certainly not the cynical soldier, show me a guy who doesn't want to come off the cross, and not the bartender who tries to keep his head down and tavern afloat amidst the chaos around him. Rather, Wren thinks that the character to which Hemingway is pointing as a model is the soldier who is reduced to sickness and silence as he recalls the events of the day. Hemingway implies that this is the soldier who was most likely moved to say at the cross, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, in thinking about the centurion and rereading this Hemingway story, I was also driven back to a book that I read in seminary and I've kept on my shelf ever since. It was written in 1975 by a then young scholar named Francis M. Wood. It is entitled Sacrifice and the Death of Christ. 
I googled the author and found that she is now at age 79 still writing on the crucifixion, still lecturing on its mystery, still trying to understand and explain its meaning. I found that she's recently published a book on the same topic and that discovery led me to order it as part of my upcoming vacation reading. In 1975, Wood wrote this. Perhaps the nearest we can get to understanding the crucifixion is to say that on the cross, God in Christ entered into the suffering, the evil, the sin of his world. He entered the darkness and transformed it into light, into blazing glory. He took responsibility for the existence of evil in all of creation. He bore the pain and the guilt of it. He accepted its consequences into himself. And in his love, he reconciled his holiness to a sinful and corrupt humanity justifying the ungodly, accepting humans just as we are. She then quotes an early church theologian who writes of the cross of Christ. Here was no overlooking of guilt or trifling with forgiveness, no external treatment of sin, but a radical, a drastic a passionate and absolutely final acceptance of the terrible situation and an absorption by the very God himself of the fatal disease so as to neutralize it effectively. This emphasis on weakness, on suffering, on absorption, made me confess that I, that if I had been the centurion at the cross or if I had written the story Hemingway wrote on the same subject, like the first soldier, I probably would have been inclined to identify with the heroic character of Christ and say, as one would say of a boxer or a bullfighter, he was pretty good in there today. But I think the soldier who returns to the barracks ill over the whole affair is perhaps closer to the truth that both Francis Wood and Hemingway want us to ponder. Namely, that the death in which the soldier had participated that day might actually be an absorption by the very God himself the God who gave up his life on the cross an absorption of all that infects humanity, all, everything. The soldier is the preferred centurion in the story because because he senses that the meaning of the cross involves something even deeper and more mysterious than the grace under pressure that the first soldier sees and applauds in Jesus. The same week in which I had been pondering the centurion and Hemingway's story, 
I happened to spend Thursday afternoon and evening at a planning retreat for the board of the Faith and Politics Institute on which I serve. Now, I've served on this board for more than a decade, and we have had our ups and downs as an organization during that time, but right now we're at a good spot with some new board members with new energy and enthusiasm, with greater fundraising, with more events occurring around town. Our meeting was held at the African American Museum. We had a productive four-hour planning session. We got a tour of the museum afterward, and then about 15 of us walked over to one of the restaurants in the Willard Hotel for a prearranged dinner. We arrived at about 6 p.m., It was a beautiful night. The restaurant was not yet crowded and we were seated at one table up against a wall on the main floor with half of us, about eight or nine of us with our backs to the wall and the other eight or nine across. Now, as you can imagine, as drinks and hors d'oeuvres were served, people were talking about all manner of things, politics, sports, the World Cup, the Nats, Summer travel plans, personal and family matters. I noticed to my right there were a group of guys, mainly younger than me, who started laughing and carrying on, and the alcohol really wasn't flowing all that freely. But I noticed one of them was holding up his thumb like this, and the others were taking turns bending it forwards and backwards and side to side. So I tuned into the conversation. It turns out he was explaining that when he had worked at Subway in high school, his thumb had actually been severed. It had been surgically reattached within a few hours, and he was showing others that while they could cause his thumb to move, he didn't have that ability. That's what you talk about at a restaurant. (laughs) But then through the mysterious, but in this case, logical operation of the human mind. He looked down the table to a person to my left who'd not been involved in the conversation. And he called out somewhat quietly, Joyce, do you remember the trip we took to Sierra Leone in 1996? She looked up and said, how could I forget it? It seems that both of them had been part of a delegation to monitor elections in that war-torn country. They began to recount the ride in the open helicopter, the accommodation at the nicest hotel in the country, the time spent watching people stand in line for hours to vote against all odds and against all personal security. The man then recounted, watching from the hotel balcony, as a gang pulled a young man out of the voting line, killed him in front of the others with knives. A few people, he said, fled the voting line but most remained to vote, to vote, to vote. 
About the time he finished the story, waiters brought the main course. And a normally gregarious person who had been listening bowed his head, crossed himself, kept it bowed for what seemed like 40 or 50 seconds, crossed himself again, opened his eyes. I assumed that he was giving thanks for the food, but that may not have been all for which he was praying. We cannot explain the crucifixion to our fullest satisfaction. We can only cross ourselves, bow our heads in silence before it. We can only trust that through the death it brought to the Christ who faced it heroically, God has in fact been absorbing into his very heart and mind and soul the suffering and sin we know. Christ on the cross absorbing into God's being the sadness and gone wrongness of our world, the sadness and gone wrongness of our lives, of my life. An injury in high school. The execution of a citizen trying to vote. Our personal sins and failings. All absorbed by God on the cross. Perhaps this is what led the centurion in Mark to say, truly this man was God's son. Perhaps this is what the centurion and Hemingway's story took with him when he trudges back to the barracks alone, leaving his fellow soldiers at the bar to close the place down and pay at least some of the bill. Perhaps this is what the man in the restaurant knew or realized when he heard the story of the slicing of a thumb of the knifing of a voter and was led to bow his head. In the past few months, I've had an email correspondence with someone facing what appears to be either a return of or another episode with cancer. I had written the person saying, I have you in my prayers. You seem wise thoughtful, open, and to have an attitude of meeting it head on. All of those will stand you in good stead, I said. The person wrote me back. One thing I learned last time around from Christ is in our weakness, our Lord is near and provides sufficient strength. This truth frees us, frees me from the stress of having to be some sort of hero just for living. In this light, the fighting, battling metaphors of dealing with cancer are unhelpful. With the centurion on my mind, I thought of this email. The first soldier in Hemingway's story 
would fight cancer like a boxer or a bullfighter. But the soldier who quietly returns to the barracks is perhaps closer to knowing what the person wrote in the email. That it is in our weakness, in Christ's weakness, in Christ's crucifixion, that our Lord is near, absorbing everything into his being and providing us sufficient strength. Truly, this man, this man, is the Son of God.